Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, I'll be damned. It's the first part of our dive into Goethe's Faust. Technically, this is part one of Faust part one. We cover everything from the three introductions to the beginning of the Gretchen plot. So basically, this is the episode where we get bogged down in Goethe's ontological slash epistemological outlook, theological reconfiguration, and existential meditations. The pervy stuff comes next episode when we tackle the Gretchen plot. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast and on Twitter at Cannonball Pod. In all those instances, that's Canon, C-A-N-O-N. The Cannonball is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of our sister shows over at the network at agorapodcastnetwork.com. One last note. If you're in the New York area and need reading and writing tutoring or are interested in online tutoring, let us know. Claude has a tutoring business on the side and a newborn, so he is always looking for a few more clients. If you need some help, send an email to claudemoinc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. We can also produce literary lectures on demand. I'm not entirely certain what situations would call for that, but they are bound to arise. And when they do, hit us up for some quality literary infotainment. Happy holidays, happy new year, whenever this happens to come out. And what the fuck? Uh, welcome to the Cannonball. This is Claude Meyer and Goozer. And what the fuck? Man, uh, the next hour of radio, dear listener, is going to be us answering that question. Because we're we're finally, we, we did the background, right? I mean, uh, we had a, that great background up uh, about uh, Goethe. The, the writer of uh, today's selection. Folks, we're talking about Faust. We're part talking about one. Faust part one, which isn't even the crazy part. Yeah, this thing is so bizarre. I, it's This is really one of those works where, I, okay, it, it's 
you know, it's problematic to some degree. We'll talk about the, the rampant misogyny. Um, oh, yeah. okay. It's not problematic to some degree. It's problematic to a high degree. Right, right. I mean, yeah. um, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll address that head on. Like, it's right. not something we're going to be making apologies for working around. I think it's, I think it's essential to the text, really. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not subtext. It's text. Um, <laughs> but it's, this is such a weird work. I mean, I mean, Okay, it's weird for a lot of different reasons. One is something that we were talking to, or that I was talking about with Rachel during the background episode. Um, it's the the hodgepodge nature of it. Like it's really fragmented. Uh, yeah. it, it, Goethe wrote it over many, many, many years. He kept coming back to revise it, to rework it, to add pieces to it, to try to make it something. The original inception of it came when he was in his, I believe, early 20s, when he was going through the Sturm and Drang period. Um, mm-hmm. He went back and heavily revised it while he was embedded in – or while he was sort of promoting and developing the, the Weimar classicism. So it, it, it has – wild variety in terms of what the pieces mean, what they're about, how he was thinking them and rethinking them. So it really is this weird hodgepodge grab bag work. It, it's also mm-hmm. just completely fragmentary. Like the, the pieces kind of go together and depending on the translation that you get, the translator may try to make it work more together or may try to make it work less together but really the truth is this is just, like he would write scenes to just bridge things yeah. that are only there to bridge things and it's it's just bizarre and this is such a strange hodgepodge work that it, it really is striking and weird that this is canonical but it it kind of yeah. works yeah, um, I, so uh, the way from what you're describing, I'm a little bit. If you'll permit me to be a little bit record store guy about this, um, are you familiar with the Beach Boys album Smile? Yes. Okay, that's a great yeah. that's a great comparison. Right. So for folks listening at home who uh, may not know about this one, so after the Beach Boys had their 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 huge hit with Pet Sounds, um, they went back into the uh, into the studio, and I'm fast and simple, simplifying, of course, the the epic of Brian Wilson's creative biography is not something we can go into um but they followed up they're like you know sort of you know they're, they're world bestriding rock and roll titans at this point and their follow-up to their biggest record was this incredibly fragmentary disjointed um almost crazy quilt of pop but it would be you know phrases rather than complete songs there are a couple of complete songs on it um but most of the record was more like you'd have a a sort of a, uh, a, a 40 seconds of what might be a chorus in one song followed by a bridge for something else. And they're, you know, the record store executives were, were just, uh, you know, they, they didn't know what to do with it. They, they were, uh, I believe, uh, I forget the name of the fellow who, who exclaimed, but he just exclaimed it's pieces. It's just pieces. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's what Faust is really. <laughs> yeah. It's, and Okay, Brian Wilson was was slowly losing his mind while he was trying to put together Smile. <clears throat> I don't yeah. think Goethe was losing his mind. He, he was just 
he he was also under a, a couple of different things uh, or a couple of different pressures. Like at one point, um, his publisher wanted more to it to put out in like a selected edition, so he mm-hmm. had to revise and rework this one section. But then that didn't fit how he was thinking about art at that point, so he had to rework this and that. I mean, it, it's it's all over the place, and so yeah. trying to find like a unified coherent message or, or, or coherent theme is really, I mean, it's difficult. I, there, there are critics who, who do it there or, or mm-hmm. who try to do it, but I, I think, all right, I, I don't know the German and I mm-hmm. don't know the critical history. So this is just really a far outside Educated guess, educated by having read three different editions with all kinds of annotations and a couple of, um, like other critical texts to go along with it. Also having talked to this friend of mine, uh, I, I think the attempts to try to make this a, a quote unquote coherent work kind of missed the point. Like, um, yeah. the, you know, when, when I was talking to Rachel, this came up that I, I wanted to compare it to, T.S. Eliot in some way, shape, or form. Not necessarily yeah. in terms of the same outlook. <laughs> I think Goethe would uh, be annoyed with Eliot. Um, but <laughs> but um, in, in terms of the fragmentary nature of the work, and one of the things that occurred after The Wasteland, a whole, uh, I guess, field of criticism arose Basically to account for modern writing and modernist writing. Mm-hmm. And so part of what they were trying to do in the thirties and forties with new criticism was, um, sort of make this claim for a coherence within certain kinds of texts that proclaimed their fragmentariness, right? So mm, yeah. if you if you look at the wasteland, it's all in bits and pieces, and that's Eliot's reflection of the fragmentation of 20th century life. Uh, Pound's cantos are all in bits and pieces, and that's his own weird fascist thing. Uh, so this <laughs> – I, 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 I'm not – I, I'm not even being ironic. That's Pound's fascism. Uh, but right, the right. – the, um, <clears throat> The the more a lot of these critics insisted on the inherent unity of something like the wasteland, the more you get the feeling that they're missing the point. Like they're really stretching right. to try to make it a more uh, stable text than it is. Not stable in the terms of like a historically stable or unstable text, but in terms of um, what I mean by that has to do with with editing. Like King Lear right, right. is not exactly a stable text because there are several different versions of it. But anyway, um, what's the variant? What's not the variant? So on and so forth. No, this is just all over the place in terms of being fragmented. And mm-hmm. the more you try to make it makes sense. I, I think you're you're sort of missing something. So you have to take it for what it is. Right. And I and I would say that that is kind of in keeping with Goethe's pushing back against the Enlightenment, which mm-hmm. is made very explicit, very explicit in uh, my favorite character uh, who shows up during the Valpurgisnacht, which I guess we'll we'll get to it at uh, at one point. But but I but I do think that that's. Um, to, to the extent that the, you, we can impute any kind of intention to this, I, I would say that like that's kind of part of Goethe's rebellion against 
the the enlightenment you know because yeah. what would you know what is the perfect enlightenment rationality would be some you know perfect clockwork uh well it'd be like a like a uh, a pope epic right? right alexander pope where everything is in these perfect clockwork uh couplets and it all ties together and um you know i i and again not knowing the german i don't know quite how tightly uh faust is is metered i imagine it's you know it's 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 a it's a it's a poetic play so you know it does have meter but if you come in looking for uh if you come in looking for like a straight line to follow, you're not going to find it. The closest no. that you have to a straight line is the relationship between Faust and Mephistopheles yeah. and how they are, you know, how they interact, how they are, how they annoy each other <laughs> throughout their, throughout their uh, uh, time together. Um, but yeah, I don't even, so Claude, how do you want to even approach this? I guess. Right. Uh, how, how do we, how do we, how do we, express this to the audience i i okay first of all i i think we just have to dive right in usually what we do okay. is start with a kind of synopsis and then move back into an analysis but i think we have to do the two at the same time because right on the one hand this isn't all right it, it, what we've been advertising is this fragmentary work but on the other hand it's dense in terms of what Goethe is doing with it at a s- couple of certain points uh, yeah. There are some real complicated things he's laying out on the table, and he's really thinking through things in these really in-depth ways. Uh, <clears throat> things that I think are burgeoning in Faust. I mean, maybe not for German romanticism, but for mm-hmm. the, the okay. Mm, this is frustrating because <laughs> my familiarity is with English and American romanticism and American yeah. romanticism is this kind of offshoot of English romanticism. Um, my familiarity is with English romanticism, but that comes a little bit later than Faust and you can see some ideas in Faust or, or that comes a little bit later than, than Goethe's early writing, which is where Faust sort of began the Sturm und Drang, let's call it. Um, you can see these ideas in there that later get taken and developed in a couple of different ways. And there are these points of contact with English romanticism that I keep seeing that I think are interesting and important to, to draw out. Um, let's just dive in. Okay. So the first yeah. weirdness of the text is the three introductory pieces. Um, <laughs> we have a dedication, a prelude on the stage, and then the prologue in heaven. So it's sort of like, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it starts from this authorial remove. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Goethe, 20 years after he began, and I believe it was roughly 20 years after he started it, he, he, put it together as a, co- uh, a, a thing. Um, <clears throat> it starts with this authorial distance where he's writing meditatively and somewhat melancholically about the 20 years that have passed, the friends that he's had who are maybe no longer here, who had read this, <clears throat> excuse me, in an earlier form and then never saw the completion and how these Phantoms, these ghosts have kind of been haunting him this whole time. Um, not just the ghosts of his friends, but the ghosts of the characters, Faustus, uh, Gretchen, Mephistopheles. These are characters that have been with him all this time and they ha- they're so old, 
right? Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of meditation on time passing and aging and the meaning of this play. And then you have the prelude on the stage. So we start right. with the author setting the scene, then go one step down to imagining this kind of meta-theatrical moment where the stage manager, the poet, and the playwright – or sorry, the stage manager, the poet, and the player of comic roles are all <clears> – <throat> acting out their own weird parts. And I believe the tradition is that Mephistopheles um, is sort of represented as the player of comic roles. Mephistopheles mm. keeps taking this uh, – I guess he keeps taking this role as the jester. Right. And like literally as a jester, that's how we first see him in the prologue in heaven. And there are moments in – Faust part two, where a jester walks on stage and there's no stage direction that is Mephistopheles, but you're just supposed to know. So yeah. anytime this weird sort of comedic character shows up, it's Mephistopheles. Anyway, the, the prelude on the stage is this kind of argument between the manager, the poet and the player about what sells and what it'd right, be good right. to put on. And so it's, you've got, I, I I was really fascinated by that, that like Goethe's opening up his play with this pretty mercenary meditation on <laughs> like, how do we get butts in seats, you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, that, that was the other, that was the weird thing. That was a concern of his. He was an active, yeah, yeah. you know, manager, director, poet in, in the theater. Uh, he was engaged in the nitty gritty details of publication, he was interested. I mean, <clears throat> okay, the Sorrows of Young Werther sold out, so he was already a blockbuster. But you know, the question is, how do you always, or, or how do you keep up with that, and so on and so forth, right? So yeah. he's he's not removed from those details, but he does lay it out where you know there is this constant tug of war between these three pieces that need something there, but this pressure to make it something more than just, you know, the, the most recent, um, Marvel movie or the most recent Star Wars movie. Like (laughs) there's more to this than that. Right. Yeah. So how do you balance all three urges? And then finally we get to the prologue in heaven. (laughs) it's you know from the very beginning all right so part of this represents that that timing of the construction right it started so long ago and then he had this other idea about it and then he had another idea about it but i think it's also got this effect of starting up high with this distanced author then down to the dress rehearsal then straight into the performance. But it it Mm -hmm. does remind us that this whole thing in some way, shape or form is a performance that we're right. right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's highlighting the, uh, the artifice. Well, it's almost, uh, what's, um, uh, Bertolt Brecht, right? Yeah. That kind of the, the Brechtian remove, you know, where you, at, you know, you take points in the play to remind everyone that they're watching a play. Right. Okay. So the the biggest shift that occurs in the prologue in heaven and the one that I think would probably be uh, 
not exactly shocking, but surprising to anyone who's heard of this and is reading this for the first time is that mm-hmm. Faust okay, he doesn't sell his soul. And there's no. nothing yeah. in the text about him selling his soul or bargaining him his soul in this way. And ultimately the the opening of the prologue in heaven transforms it sort of already transforms the material so that it's more of a jobian wager right right uh, and that's what struck me instantly was the fact that in the prologue you have mephistopheles you know the devil himself is hanging out you know in the firmament with the archangels and the lord and makes a wager with the yeah. lord and that's that's specifically the setup in the book of job like i mean it's 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 one for one yeah all right now there are a couple of interesting things to dig into when Mephistopheles appears. One, he's apparently dressed as the jester. So if we're imagining the court in mm-hmm. heaven, then his role is as the comedian. But he he has these – all right. He has this moment when he comes on where he's basically just bagging on everything. Uh, he starts <laughs> talking to God. Um, I have no remarks to make about the sun or planets. I merely see how mankind toils and moils. Earth's little gods still do not change a bit, are just as odd as on their primal day. Their lives would be a little easier if you'd not let them glimpse the light of heaven. They call it reason and employ it only to be more bestial than any beast. Um, okay. This goes back, or this reminded me of something that we were talking about when we were talking about Milton. The... The thing that Mephistopheles sees is the way that consciousness is pain, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for yeah. him, awareness and self-awareness is something that brings with it the necessary self-awareness that you are separated from the world around you. So, I mean, this is <clears throat> this is Nietzschean. Uh, mm-hmm. There's this drive to get yourself out of your skull to use your reason to find the whatever thing it is to drive you out of your reason so that you can tur- return to the most bestial state, right? It's the Hunter Thompson yeah. thing. Um, the, the Hunter Thompson at the beginning of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has some quote from Samuel Johnson about uh, bestial people or something like that. And it seems to be what he's – if there's an animus to fear and loathing in Las Vegas, that's not drugs. It's that, that part of what you will do in a crazy situation to relieve yourself of the responsibility of a consciousness is drive yourself out of your mind. Uh, yeah. That's what Mephistopheles <laughs> seems to be arguing. Right, right. Uh, and he's, he's a nihilist in a couple of different ways. Uh, God says, do you have nothing else to tell me? Do you ever come except to criticize? Is nothing ever right for you on earth? And he says, no, Lord, I find things there as always downright bad. I'm so sorry for mankind's unending miseries that even I am loath to plague the wretches. So that's, that's kind of like his, he's a nihilist. He's, he's mm-hmm. a provoker. And yeah, the uh, what's it, the, the the spirit that always negates the spirit mm-hmm. of negativity. Like he'll never do anything affirming. He will only upend things, and you know, if you ever get amusement out of that, that's something you're bringing to it, right? Like it's never he's he's never building anything up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they have this 
kind of back and forth and the Lord offers up Faust essentially and says – gives uh, Mephistopheles the same dictum that he gives to Satan in Job where he says as long as he's alive, you can do whatever you want to him. Yeah. Uh, so Mephistopheles says, sure. Uh, God says, though now he only serves me blindly and ineptly, I soon shall lead him into clarity. The gardener knows when the sapling turns green that blossoms and fruit will brighten future years. Uh, okay. God seems to have – all right. This – one more time. This was something that, that Rachel and I were talking about. Goethe was not exactly a believer and he really abandoned doctrinaire Christianity, uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, in his teens or twenties. But he, um, <clears throat> there are things about this work that are extraordinarily Protestant, particularly the ending. Uh, <clears throat> the, the thing that Goethe seems to be getting at with Faust serving God, even if it's slantwise, mm-hmm. is, this way <clears throat> that error seems to be a part of the human endeavor, and as long as you're striving for the right end, you yeah. can keep erring and eventually get there. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a uh, it's like a it's like a counter Calvinism almost. Yeah. Like it, well, maybe not, I, I guess you know it. It retains the Calvinist notion of the uh, what he called pervasive depravity, just meaning that there's 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 nothing a human being can do that isn't tainted somehow by their imperfection and inability to live up to God's standards. But whereas you know, of course, Calvin takes <laughs> takes the tech that like so that means that you are completely helpless and it's 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 on God whether you know you're saved or not. Goethe takes the almost um, I guess almost Pelagian um, standpoint that uh, I, you know Pelagianism versus Augustinianism that. You, you, you can save yourself, but it takes effort. It takes will and it will never, well, it's almost like, um, well, it's like Zeno's arrow, right? Yeah. The, 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 the paradox that, uh, you know, you, you shoot the arrow and as long as, you know, someone can still be running, you know, half a length ahead of it, whatever, whatever, it will never hit them. But that in that striving is what is that, that striving is what is salvation. Even if you never achieve it, you've achieved exactly. it already. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that seems to be where, Goethe lands, uh, which yeah. I guess is ironic if we're talking about Zeno's paradox. <laughs> but um, the, the see, we're already turning ourselves into knots over this stuff, people. <laughs> but the, the the thing that he keeps coming back to, or the thing that makes something divine in this work, is the continual striving towards something. Uh, mm-hmm. If you stop striving, you lapse into the Mephistophelian nihilism right you you lapse into nothingness and that is the source of damnation here so it has less to do with accidentally maybe accidentally poisoning your mother and having your brother killed and drowning your baby then it has right. to do with just accepting the fact that you did that. Um, it's it's very, very strange. It's very weird. It's counterintuitive. But that seems to be one of those through lines in here where Goethe is trying to work out how 
Faust can be saved through his damnation in a way. Right. All right. So <clears throat> if that's confusing to anyone, uh, I have a PhD and I'm trying to thread the needle. On this. <laughs> and I'm a, and I'm a, a, a dunderhead layman and uh, I'm having a great time. So, okay. <laughs> so let's, let's kick in the gear. <laughs> so God, all right, to put this <clears throat> into context, God says, uh, so be it, do as you are minded, divert the spirit from his primal source and drag him. If you can keep hold of him along your downward path and stand abashed when you must needs admit a good man in his groping intuition is well aware of what's his proper course. All right. So this, this I think articulates what we've been getting at. Um, <clears throat> when we get to Wordsworth, which uh, if we ever make it through Faust is actually right around the corner. But if we get to Wordsworth, yeah. Wordsworth, uh, seems in a couple of his poems to have this idea that we are all innately good. It's, uh, social influences which are corrupting. This, I think, is the Rousseauian Wordsworth. But mm-hmm. um, it's social influences which are corrupting, but deep down within us, our, our drives are to the good. Our drives are towards compassion and care for others and for ourselves and for the world around us. And what we have to do is learn to trust that that inner goodness. Don't let anything drag it down and just trust that the better part of yourself will lead the way. If you just do the right thing, keep doing the right thing that feels like good, right? Not feels mm-hmm. good as in just do what you want. That feels good in terms of I'm doing the right thing by others and the right thing by right. me. Then the, the hardships that you encounter will lessen. Um, yeah. All right. So <laughs> that idea of a kind of innate goodness is, I think, working in the Lord's words to Mephistopheles here. A good man in his mm-hmm. groping intuition is well aware of what's his proper course. Um, mm-hmm. It's intuition. We can intuit deep down what exactly it is that we're um, supposed to do. Right. Right. Who which is, are, which is itself, are. again, a kind of um, that's another sort of riposte to the uh, the enlightenment obsession with uh, rationalizing ethics. Right. Yeah. Where right. Where, where you know, where the, the, it's taking off the claim that, like, no, you, you have you have an innate moral compass and it'll it'll lead you right if you just listen to it. Like it's not you don't have to spend. 500 pages arguing about uh, the Kantian imperative or what have you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, he says, <coughs> excuse me. So Mephistopheles says, agreed, the business won't take long. As for my bet, I'm not the least bit worried when I achieve my purpose. Let me beat my breast triumphantly. Dust shall he eat and greedily like my celebrated serpent cousin. And the Lord says, when that occurs, again, come uninvited. I have no hate for creatures of your kind. Of all the spirits of negation, rogues like you bother me the least. Human activity slackens all too easily, and people soon are prone to rest on any terms. That's why I like to give them the companion who functions as a prop and does a job as a devil there's literally a necessary evil here uh the threat of nihilism the threat of nothingness is a prod to energy and activity a prod to keep going to keep finding your way 
And mm-hmm. there are several different versions of nihilistic nothingness. Uh, one is a kind of sloth. The other is a kind of cynicism. Uh, yeah. The the cynic who says that your intuition is just X, Y, or Z, or love is just chemistry, man. I'm a cold, right. dark reason. <laughs> right. But it yeah, the, uh, yeah, the yeah the the edge lord in your college philosophy club. Yeah, there you if, go. Uh, I mean, not, not saying I was the kind of nerd to join my college <laughs> philosophy club. Certainly not. <clears throat> anyway, but the that's that's what I think he's getting at here. That's the true danger: is the lapse into nothingness, the stops, the the stopping striving, and there's something yeah. about nihilism that can be a prod to keep going and there's something about nihilism that can also be a a drag to stop right yeah so that's how mephistopheles is sort of kind of functioning here it's really tough to work out because you kind of have to get yourself attuned to this weird framework that you're just playing with but I th- mm-hmm. think once you get that, once you stop thinking about it in terms of sin and evil and more in terms of drive and the negation of drive, then it starts to become clearer. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think the error that a first-time reader might come into with this. Uh, this is the error that I made when I first read this. said, okay, this is going to be a dark, <laughs> gloomy uh, work about sin and selling your soul. It's not. Uh, yeah. There, there are parts that are really sort of disturbing, but it's, it's not quite that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So we move from the prologue in heaven to night. And this was one of the earliest pieces that he wrote. Um, this is Faust long-windedly droning on right. about how exhausted and tired and worn out he is <clears throat> from being a professor. Uh, <laughs> uh, only someone with tenure would have this kind I was say, of complaint. I don't know if maybe this hit home a little bit for you. I don't, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, assume that, but. Well, I, I've been grading papers all day today, but uh, <laughs> well, I guess it's a little different. His his um his weariness comes from feeling like he's seen it all, you know, and, and that it's yeah right. R- rather than you know just the the grind of uh, getting through the you know work with your students material. He's he's more like uh, like oh hmm, philosophy done it, medicine done it, you know, theology been there. <laughs> You know, and I'm still yeah. I'm still dumb as a bag of rocks. <laughs> <clears throat> well, <clears throat> there's still a kind of cynicism. At w- okay, this is there's a creeping cynicism. I, I think at work mm-hmm. and uh, on line 365, he says, "This is too much for heart to bear. I may well know more than all these dullards, those doctors, teachers, officials, and priests. Be unbothered by scruples or doubts." And fear neither hell nor its devils, but I get no joy from anything either. Yeah. Know nothing that I think worthwhile, and don't imagine that what I teach could better mankind or make it godly. Yeah. So it, it's it's not just a, a exhaustion; it's it's being burnt out and feeling the futility. Right, futility. That's um, I guess that's that. That's closer to it than just like sheer everything. Yeah, exhaustion. It's futility. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and so maybe this does hit home after spending years and years and years <laughs> studying all this stuff and being able to read it all and being paid nothing and having student after student write the worst essay of my entire career and not really having a career. Yeah, he kind of hits home. So anyway, the um, <laughs> he he has it. It really goes on, and and this is um. I think a, a reasonably compelling piece to read. So the question is, uh, how do you get out of this? The first thing he tries to do is open a book of magic and he views the sign of the macrocosm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he contemplates the sign and it's like, oh, there's this beautiful image of the entire universe and I know everything about it, but then it's not um, – it's not enough for him. He says, how grand a show, but still, alas, mere show, infinite nature. When can I lay hold of you and of your breasts, you fountains of all life on which the heavens and earth depend, towards which my withered heart is straining, you flow, you nurse, and yet I thirst in vain. All right. So he goes from the sign of the macrocosm to conjuring the earth spirit and the earth spirit says, what do you want? And he's so overwhelmed by this thing that he conjured that he can't even really quite say, uh, 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 uh right. Just stammers and, you know, tongue tied. He says, you know, I, I am made in God's image and I'm part of you. And the earth spirit says, no, 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 no. You have nothing to do with me. And so that's a brutal insult to the soul of Faust. And he, he shrinks away defeated. All right. So what is the, the sign of the macrocosm and what is the earth spirit? All right. I'm going to pull an aside mm-hmm. here and just say, uh, if you're reading along the, the work that we're mainly focusing on or the translation that we're mainly focusing on is Stuart Atkins translation that was put out through Princeton University Press. Uh, that's the main translation and really in, in a lot of ways, it's the most reader friendly and it's the most poetic. Uh, there's another translation that I've also been using, which was David Luke's put out by the Oxford University Press. And that one's also fairly fluid and tries to catch more of the verse. Uh, and then there's Walter Arndt's put out through Norton. Okay, so Arndt's is the driest of them all and really kind of the most academic. Yeah. It, it's not exactly reader-friendly, but between all of these, Arndt's has the best notes. Uh, so I've been consulting the notes for Arndt, some of the notes for the Oxford, and mostly relying on the Atkins translation for, uh, I guess, our analysis here. Um, Arndt had some interesting notes on the sign of the macrocosm versus the, the, the earth spirit. Okay. So there are a couple of things to note here. First, the, the sign of the macrocosm as Faust is discussing it, it seems to be like, okay, the, the, th- the thing that I kept thinking of was in Star Wars where they pull up the, the image of the Death Star as this kind of like 3D graphic that's floating in space. Um, that seems to be what, uh, Goethe has in mind. Yeah, here. yeah. It's, it's an image. It's, it's a, a hologram in a way. Uh, it's this 
thing that seems to give truth, but it's just the outer appearance. Right. Faust doesn't want the outer appearance. He, he doesn't want one more thing to contemplate. He wants to be in it and of it. But the issue is once he's confronted with that, he shrinks from right. it. Okay. So there's a major shift here and that's that in, in the, the usual iterations of Faust in the, the usual <clears throat> or in the source material and even in Marlowe's play, which Goethe didn't read until after he'd finished <laughs> Faust, <Yeah>. uh, <clears throat> which is surprising because there are a lot of similarities, but, uh, in, in Goethe's or, or in Marlowe's play and in the source material, what Faust does is gets tired and weary with life and so then conjures right. the devil. But here he doesn't conjure the devil, he conjures an earth spirit. So we're de-Christianizing mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that's going on here. We're moving it away from sin towards material experience. Yeah. And material experience is something that is alien to him. So he shrinks from that and falls into despair. Uh, the spirit has this interesting line about itself. In the tides of life and action storms, I surge and ebb, move to and fro, <clears throat> as cradle and grave, as unending sea, as constant change, as life's incandescence. I work at the whirring loom of time and fashion the living, gar- fashion the living garment of God. So what the earth spirit is, is kind of like the, the material covering that allows the sort of energy and drive of the divine to shine through. Yeah. Or, or allows it to function. But it's this other kind of innate materialism or, or this active life that, that Faust has nothing to do with. Yeah. Right. Okay. So at that point, Faust is interrupted by Igor. I mean, Wagner. Um, <laughs> Renfield approaches. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm being, I, I'm being a little glib here, but this really is the prototype of that yeah. figure. Uh, you can trace it because Byron did a play that was basically a not very funny ripoff of Faust mm-hmm. and Byron could rightly claim that he'd never read Faust because he had no German. But Shelley, who he's hanging out with at the time, had plenty of German and read in translation tons of pieces of Faust yeah, doing. Yeah. So uh, Byron pretty much ripped it off and wrote this thing called Manfred about this guy who is uh, facing this – well, he's this wizard who's facing this – uh, existential crisis of damnation because apparently he slept with his sister, which is in no way uh, exactly like the thing that Byron did, which got him <laughs> driven out of England. Uh, it, to, to Byron's credit, it was his half sister. <laughs> but, uh, I'll give that half credit in that case. Well, he didn't know at the time, but when he found out, yeah. Uh, when they found out, she sent him a letter and said, Oh my God, can you believe what he did, what we did? And he sent a letter back saying, Wow, that's messed up. So what are you doing next Tuesday? <laughs> all right. Um, uh, all right. So oh, anyway, that got oh, him. Kicked out. So 
So in, in Byron's uh, sort of retelling of Faust uh, called Manfred, which if you are looking for gothy, gloomy creepiness, go check out yeah. Manfred because it's it's over the top and fun and, and creepy. But uh, you have a figure like this who is made less bumbling and silly and more full on nefarious or, or just creepy sidekicky. Mm-hmm. And this is really sort of the start of the Igor. Trope. Yeah, yeah, the the, the mad uh, scientist's obsequious assistant. Yeah, 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 and and that's the thing in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, that character does not yeah, exist. Yeah. Uh, that was this kind of gothic invention that gets grafted on in the film versions and is not there. But anyway, that's an aside. We have an interruption by Wagner, almost like my weird digressive interruption there. And Wagner is his fabulous. He's basically the TA. Yeah. And he's he's more or less a grad student TA who comes in and says, hey, were you declaiming some classical tragedy? My, how smart it makes you. Uh, Wagner, he represents, and this is the thing I think about Faust, is that it... it benefits you not necessarily to think about this as actual characters acting and more like symbolic functions, right? Yeah. But um, Wagner represents this kind of dry, pedantic search for power through knowledge. But, I mean, it's ironic because it's what power do you end up with? You end up a dry, dusty old professor uh, like Faust. Um, you know, what's the meme going around? Or there was that meme going around a while back. Um, everyone says that as uh, an English lit professor, I'm trying to indoctrinate my students into some kind of nefarious communist scheme when I can barely get them to read five pages <laughs> over the course right. of three months. Anyway, so Wagner mistakes what Faust is doing. Faust is trying to conjure life. He's trying to conjure this engagement with material existence, uh, this sort of fuller, intenser, you know, what have you. And then when it fails utterly, he, he breaks down and has this impassioned cry and Wagner thinks, Oh, this must be more rhetoric. So Wagner keeps mistaking the, the actual for the rhetorical or, or wisdom for just rote knowledge. Right. Right. Um, so Faust makes this case further on down. Uh, Wagner is saying, you know, <clears throat> we must study rhetoric in order to, uh, know how to say all this stuff. And Faust says, just try to make an honest living and don't put on a cap and bells. Intelligence and proper sense need little art to be expressed. If you have something that you really want to say, is there a need to hunt for words? Let me be blunt. Those sparkling speeches you admire, those uh, paper baubles for mankind's amusement give no more solace than fog-laden winds that's uh, soft through withered autumn leaves. This is that that sort of romantic trope of rhetoric versus true expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is one of those like really, I think, formative places where you see it. Yeah. Right. This is the animating thing for for ninety percent of romantic lyric poetry. I'm not composing a rhetorical object or a rhetorical argument. I'm composing an actual experience with emotions and and whatnot. Yeah. Um. 
which serves to hide the rhetorical <laughs> argument underneath the yeah. lyric. But anyway, this is one of those expressions of that. And that's why I keep saying that there's so much proto-romantic stuff yeah. in here. All right. So you have this pedantic interruption. You have the rhetoric uh, versus reality. And then you have this kind of conversation or discussion about the use of the past. Uh, Faust says, is parchment then the sacred fount? And does one drink from it forever uh, slake our thirst? There's nothing you can gain refreshment from except what has its source in your own soul. Okay. So again, this <laughs> this sounds close to blake but it's not nearly as pungent mm-hmm. um you know in blake's marriage of heaven and hell he has all these proverbs of hell about how the you know the energy of the present you know rolls over the bones of the past uh what is the past for if it's just inert material then why are you beholden yeah. to it right uh, why do you view that as the transcendental wisdom of all time when uh, whatever truth you feel inside you is what you should be focusing on? So again, we're back to that intuition, right? Um, so Faust is really tired of Wagner and he's bemoaning the fact that he's not part of this earth spirit. He's been belittled by it. And he has this meditation on what it means to be human and and so on and so forth. Um, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And it ultimately ends, Wagner checks out, and Faust has this, I guess, suicidal moment. Uh, he, he sees a vial of poison. Uh, we find out in the next scene that his father was a doctor and he was kind of his father's apprentice. And they went around sort of doctoring to people who had the plague. Uh, his father had all these vials of medicine and poison. Maybe they were the same thing. But Faust sees this thing and he's like, okay, this could maybe end it all. And what do I really have to fear? Uh, I don't care anymore. There's nothing for me on earth, so I may as well kill myself. And that's when he hears the chorus of angels. There's an Easter chorus going on outside. And he has this redemptive moment where he decides not to kill himself. Hey, and wouldn't you know it? It's Easter. So, uh, he is resurrected. Yeah. Um, 
his his decision not to kill himself doesn't come from a recognition of Christian salvation, though, even though it is triggered by these angels yeah. or, or by this chorus of angels or this chorus of Easter song. It's from his own reminiscence. Yeah. Um, this hymn announced the lively games of youth, the happy freedom of spring celebrations, the memory of childlike feelings now keeps me from taking the last solemn step. Um, it's not that he finds any kind of orthodox or doctrinaire Christian resurrection or um, Christian salvation. What he finds is healing this kind of alienation with himself by returning to joyful memories of the past that are triggered yeah. by the yeah. song. Which is I, – I think is, is – it, it, it really um – I, I noticed that, and it sounds a lot like, uh, you know, how there are, I have a lot of lapsed Christian friends who will mention that when they say when they go home for like holidays or something and attend like a, like a Christmas service with their family or something like that, the, they come away with a, a good feeling of, you know, and it's a feeling of community and, and this absence of alienation because they participated in a joyful occasion with other people. Not necessarily that, again, not like yeah. House that they accepted the dogmatic propositions that it is ostensibly predicated upon, but rather just the act of experiencing joy with other people is itself, uh, yeah, is itself a joy, even if you're not, you know, well, it's, it's like, a, this is, this is going to be very insulting, I think, to the Christian <laughs> service. It's like when you get super hyped when you're watching a football game that you don't care about, but your friends are getting really hyped up about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, I, I got to say, there's a part of me that responds pretty sincerely uh, when I'm holding a candle out in the freezing cold, watching a donkey yeah. uh, hang out in front of a, a fake straw thing with a fake uh, baby. Uh, absolutely. It brings up, so, uh, hey man, it, it brings up a lot of feelings in even the most lapsed of American Protestants. <laughs> do- donkeys may be stubborn, but they're often very they sweet. I mean, anyway, so <laughs> um, to get back to it though, that, that seems to be the thing. Uh, when he's taking a, okay, this is going to be something to keep in mind. This is a symbolic thread that he keeps returning to. When he takes up the poison, it's a mock Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he has, when he hears the celebration is reconnected deep down with himself, that's the real salvation. So it's not the, the, the drinking of the thing, which will lead to the salvation of nothingness. It's the returning to your memory. And this again, I think is in opposition to Wagner's obsession with the parchments of the past. This is the actual living memory that can rejuvenate. And what a totally romantic thing that Wordsworth comes back to again. Yeah, again. yeah. All right. So it's almost as if Wordsworth had read Faust or, or Goethe. Anyway, um, so we have Faust finding this redemptive moment, and then we have outside the city gate. All right. Now, this is this weird scene where – okay, every, I'm going to keep saying that. Every, <laughs> every scene in Faust is, is weird, so just everybody just get used to saying that, yeah. So this is where that kind of, um, I guess salvation is enacted in a social way. Everybody, it's springtime, it's Easter, everybody's coming 
out from being cooped up indoors all winter and you have this joyous rejuvenation and Faust, uh, this is going to be complicated because one of the things that we're going to be talking about for the next couple of hours is Goethe's relation to society, <laughs> man. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> If there is a movement in Faust, it's one from society as redemptive to society as, um, I guess, poisoning yeah, as, or cynical. As, as obstacle to redemption, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the but in this moment, society is redemptive, and Faust joins the community and rejoins all of these others who are engaged in sort of coming out and celebrating. And there's this kind of, um, I guess, uh, uh, there's this almost painterly uh, exploration of the peasant life or the common life as a good. <laughs> it's uh, Bruegel. It reminds me of Bruegel. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if... Goethe ever saw Bruegel, but that seems to be the kind of idea. I know he knew Rembrandt, but not like literally knew him, but yeah, knew yeah. the work. Uh, but that seems to be the the impulse here to celebrate all of these people who are sort of coming around. And Faust and Wagner uh, are taking their stroll, and they're reintegrated into it, but they're reintegrated in a weird mm -hmm. way. Uh, on the one hand, they are part of it and enjoying the celebration. On the other, they have this kind of broad romantic vista where they get up on a hill to overlook everything and talk about how everything's going. Uh, again, another romantic trope in order to understand the whole and experience the sublime of the thing, you have to get up high right, on the right. hill to survey the whole. Uh, I mean, no Wordsworth doesn't do this in Tintoretti. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, the, oh, and if you want to see a, an extraordinary, two extraordinarily ironic 20th century versions of the same are in Wallace Stevens' Man at the mm -hmm. Dump. Where the high, huge vista is kind of this gigantic mound of trash. Yeah. And, uh, he sort of de, or like de elevates it. And then Robert Lowell in Skunk Hour, um, is sitting on his back stoop. Yeah. Like that's his vista. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway, um, uh, so anyway, uh, they, they have this sort of weird ironic moment. One of the villagers, uh, an old peasant comes up and offers Faust, uh, a beer and says, thank you for everything you've done for us. Uh, remembering how, um, Faust and his father had cured the plague. And Wagner says, wow, it must be great to have all this power over the peasants. <laughs> Again, the way Wagner is thinking about, uh, knowledge and the search for knowledge is, you know, that cynical college student. Well, I'm going to get a oh, good job. Right, that kind of that kind of group, uh, right? social climbing, grasping, um, apple polishing, resume padding bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and Fal says, I mean, this this seemed really equivocal to me. Uh, he has these lines where he says, "All right." He says, the last period of master color, that, that was our medicine. His father was a kind of alchemist. Mm -hmm. The patients died and no one thought to ask if anyone was healed. Mm -hmm. So they went around and did stuff. But according to Faust's reading of it, 
they didn't do any good. Yeah. And so with diabolical electuaries, we ravaged in these hills and valleys with greater fury than the plague. I have myself dosed thousands with the poison. They wasted away and I must live to hear the brazen murders uh, agilated. Um, they were maybe inadvertently poisoning the, the plague victims or maybe they were advertently poisoning the plague right. victims, putting them out of the yeah, There's some ambiguity in the text. Yeah, and, at least in the and what I The impression I came away with in this, in this part is that it was kind of – I saw it as, as, as uh, evidence of Faust's kind of, I don't know, um, superiority, his, his, his arrogance almost. Because here we have here we yeah. have this this uh, you know a peasant whom clearly you know in the in the order of the day he is obviously socially superior to even even given his ease in interacting with them that Wagner doesn't quite have like Wagner is still of course very cognizant of his own he's very cognizant of trying to increase his superiority Faust is just comfortable in his superiority and could just you know can chill right. um, but what what really I, I took away from that is that he. It, it, it's 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 indicative of that same kind of arrogance that instead of I don't know instead of coming away from that uh, interaction with any kind of like I don't know warm human feeling all he can think about is like ah oh, yeah those <clears throat> stupid rubes you know he's it's, and it's it's, it's 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 presented on its face it's it's almost like Faust being humble in a way because he's saying like oh well we, we didn't really help anybody we we didn't know what we were doing whatever whatever yeah. but I think I think more. The, the reading I got from that is it's Faust saying again, like, yeah, those dumb bunch of rubes, like we were just fleecing them and uh, you know, who cares or maybe not who cares. Like he's clearly conflicted about it, but it, it did feel more like it was kind of establishing Faust as this, you know, arrogant, uh, a very superior feeling guy um, who knows yeah. he's above it all and who derives right. even, he, he doesn't even take any pleasure in the fact that like he gave any kind of like, uh, spiritual or, or or psychic solace to people who are suffering, like that doesn't really occur. It was like, well, I did. Yeah. We didn't actually cure their physical ailment, and so it was all useless. I'm like, no, man. Like, you you your dad did perform a service to these people. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, continue. <laughs> no, I, I I think you're right. I think you're right, and that that seems to be coming through. He he begin. You know, Wagner says, well, you know, you did your best, and everything's cool. And yeah. uh, they love you, dude. And Faust basically Faust has this line: "Happy the man who still can hope to swim to safety in this sea of error." Yeah, okay, yeah. again, error can lead you to so on and so forth. But he he has this articulation here of what exactly it is that he's looking for. You know, everything has exhausted him, uh, or or he's exhausted with everything and can't find whatever this is that he's striving to know or understand or be. He says, yet in us all, there is an innate urge to rise aloft and soar along wind lost in the blue space above us. The lark pours forth its vibrant song. When high above fur covered crags, the eagle floats on outspread wing. And when above the plains and lakes, the crane seeks out its native space, uh, native place. Okay. He's, he's trying to express this kind of transcendent mm-hmm. ideal. There's, there's something in us which wants more than just the material. It's part of what he saw in the earth spirit that he couldn't get at. 
Um, it's something that he's striving towards, but he doesn't even know or understand what it is. I think this is Goethe trying to express that human desire for transcendence. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, th- this goes like, okay, we're mocking Kant a little bit earlier, but that's one of the things that Kant was trying to intervene with. All right. There's this material world. Then there's this, um, transcendental world beyond space and time, which is what we all strive towards. And Kant is extraordinarily logical about marking out the one and then tries to leave space for the other. Yeah. You know? Um, or to try to articulate as best he can what that other is. And according to Schopenhauer, what Kant really discovers is what Plato said a long time ago. Hey, it's the world of forms, but we're not talking about Schopenhauer now. So anyway, um, what Faust is trying to articulate is that sort of sense of otherness. Like, what is it in us that wants to be more than just wake up in the morning, have a good breakfast, go off to work, say hi to somebody, do a good job, come home, go to bed. Right, right. Wagner can't understand it beyond the material. Wagner has no idea what he's talking about. Um, Faust says, you only know one driving force, and may you never seek to know the other. Two souls, alas, reside within my breath, and each is eager for a separation in throes of coarse desire. One grips the earth with all its senses. The other struggles from the dust to rise to high ancestral spheres. Um, so one part of him is sort of bound or or grounded or desirous of the material of the earth and the other is desirous of these transcendental experiences it's almost as if he's articulating what schiller had proposed in the letters in the uh, aesthetic education on man that sex could be a combining of both of these drives oh wait did Goethe <laughs> <laughs> was friends with schiller and what faust seems to be articulating here is this thing that becomes a major point throughout the work um sex or or sex within a certain kind of situation of care for the other can become this transcendental moment right or this transcendental act uh the problem is in this earth it has or in this world it has um consequences uh, one being children and disease, another being, um, I guess it's over and the desire grows for more and faster. Right. Right. Uh, you can use it to lapse into a kind of cynicism, right? Or it can become this overwhelming drive. But that seems to me, at least through this reading, uh, to be where Faust is trying to link these two things yeah. together, or, or at least Goethe is trying to link these two things together. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily overt about it, but symbolically, it's kind of the touchstone <laughs> for the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, and then they see a poop. Okay. <laughs> they do, and this is yet another way in which this is, and it's it's played, it's played for laughs. Honestly, right? Because, I mean, yeah, it has to okay. be, right? 
All right. Well, it, I think it's played in a couple of different ways. Uh, Wagner just sees a dog, and Faust sees flames coming out of the right. dog. And, and um, we should we should we should Faust, stress it is specifically identified as a poodle. That is the breed of dog. As a black yeah. poodle. Okay. Uh, I was curious about this, and I asked uh, Rachel, and. You know, is this the translation? Is this just Atkins being weird about this? And she was like, well, you know, poodle could mean in German of the time any larger dog. Okay. Right. Right. But the text makes it pretty clear it's a right. poodle. <laughs> it's a big I, – I don't know how this isn't being played for laughs. I mean it's really kind of this silly thing. But this black poodle starts surrounding them and coming in. And they have this conversation where Faust seems attuned to seeing something more in the poodle than is mm-hmm. there. And Wagner can't see anything but, hey, man, it's a big black fuzzy goofy looking dog. Um, it's Mephistopheles. Uh, we know it, uh, because we're in on the joke, but Faust doesn't know it yet. Uh, he takes the thing home and he tries to translate the bottle. Mm -hmm. You know, like you do on, (laughs) once you had a nice walk. Um, the, the joke is that the poodle keeps interrupting him every time he's talking about something. He takes it home. He tells it to sit behind the stove and he has this meditation on, ah, you know, I feel so good after having been out. And then the poodle starts growling and jumping around and interrupts his meditation. Then, ah, you know, I feel this drive to connect with the ones. And then the poodle interrupts him again. (laughs) And then, um, he starts translating, uh, he starts translating the New Testament. Uh, specifically, he's translating um, the the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, yeah. and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Um, he translates it in three different ways, and Arndt was pretty insightful in this. He begins with, in the beginning was the Word. No, that's not good. In the beginning was the mind. No, that ain't right, good. Right. Then, in the beginning was the power. No, that's not it. In the beginning was the act. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, what art traces is the way that Faust in his translation comes to this articulation of the, the sort of full understanding of the Sturm und Drang <laughs> to, to move from rhetoric to the action, mm-hmm. right? And, and this is one of those unfortunate places where if you know your 20th century fascist propaganda, you can't help but see yeah. how this emphasis on action above all right. else um, really gets taken and perverted. Right. It, it, yeah, it's, it's taken as a kind of the, the – uh, <sighs> It's taken as an inversion of the kind of, and you and you see it a lot in, uh, in specifically Nazi propaganda and it's anti-Semitic mode, yes. where the the you know the the, the 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 Jewish person is simultaneously um, they are intellectualized, right? They are they are not you know true workers. They are you know they don't actually do any real action. They are fully you know in, in these. They're they're thinkers, you know, and Nazi propaganda would point out stuff like, you know, like uh, massive uh, commentaries on scriptures, right? Like a Talmud or something like that as evidence of their unwillingness to commit to an action, but rather hem and haw over everything. Um, 
which and which is of course you know then contrasted to the fascist uh mode of just like we'll just go do something and usually that's you know go crack some skulls for no fucking reason but you know uh but yeah that, that's something that kind of um i noticed that too I, I didn't quite have the vocabulary to really i don't know to, to really put it together like you just did there but yeah you're absolutely right but that kind of like well and that's that's the ro- the romanticism that went into the fascist movement as well like you, you can't get away yeah. from that well, yeah, and, and that's what art really articulates. Faust translation, it moves from the the Lutheran Re- Reformation to the Romantics, uh, yeah. to a full expression of Romantics. Speaking of anti-Semitism, the Lutheran Reformation, uh, anyway, this is, the, this is not the time for me to, to bang on my drum about Martin Luther. Anyway. <laughs> All right, so in essence, the divine for for faust is the act and he's interrupted by mephistopheles and um this is when faust i guess he does his magic and this is kind of a fun scene to try to Mm -hmm. imagine um Mephistopheles blows up big like a hippopotamus then dissolves in a shade or, or I guess the poodle blows up yeah. huge and then dissolves into a kind of nothingness and out pops Mephistopheles dressed like a courtier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was this, it was this, like, it was this uh-huh, I'm bizarre kind of uh, scene of like the dog, like sp- running around and around and around or like spiraling around. And then, yeah, it, yeah. it was, it was a trip. I was really like, when, <laughs> when I was reading, I was like, oh, okay. So this is what I'm in for. Got it. A, ma- a magic poodle just blew up and spun around, and now it's a weird evil guy. Cool. <laughs> and, and honestly, and, and we I have, really was like, I was sold. I really was sold on Faust <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah, it's weird. Okay. So the um, Mephistopheles, when he appears, uh, he has this great little speech uh faust is asking him who are you what are you he says a part of that force which always willing always produces always willing evil always produces good uh that comes back to that miltonic dictum that you know evil as this kind of driving force Mm -hmm. uh is always going to be trying to subvert the will of God, but because the will of God is, you know, so awesome, then it's gonna inadvertently do good. Right. It, it will, so it, even it will it fulfill the will of God, even as it tries to subvert it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's almost as if Goethe had read Milton and then creatively misreads the purpose of Satan in Milton and then. Uh, a whole ton of English romantics who were familiar with Goethe persist in that reading of Satan in Milton's Paradise Lost and turn it into a trope uh, for something else. Huh. Who the fuck it? <laughs> anyway. Um, Faust says, this is a riddle, what does it mean? And Mephistopheles says, I am the spirit of eternal negation, and rightly so, since all that gains existence is only fit to be destroyed. That's why it would be best if nothing ever got created. Accordingly, my essence is what you call sin, destruction, or, to speak plainly, evil. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this. Okay, for one, I, I, I like 
to to read that or wanted to read that just because it seems so oh, hammy. Right. It's like fun to ham it up. But the other thing is, um, it really does clarify what Goethe is doing here. Sin and evil are not necessarily these kinds of acts as Dante would be thinking yeah. about them or as Milton would be thinking about them. Sin and evil uh, is negation. Right. It's stopping. It's constant criticizing. <laughs> it's that cynical drag. Yeah. Like it's, it's not, a, it's not that's, a, a counter. It's not a fully countering force in and of itself as might be conceived of in a kind of uh, like a dualist sense like you have with um, – well, like Manichaeism or, or, or Zoroastrianism uh, to an extent where, you know, there, there's the force of good and the force of evil, but rather the, well, I don't know. I, I, yeah. It's the conception of like the evil is merely the absence of good. Like it's not, it's not a thing in and of itself. It's like, uh, like how cold is the absence of heat? It's not a, it's not a force in and of itself. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's negation. Right. It's nothingness. It's nihilism. Yeah. Um, we're back to that kind of Nietzschean thing again. It has no clear definition because it, there's nothing there to define. So it just serves as a drag on everything yeah. else. Uh, it has no sense of self. So all it can do is tear down everything that it sees as having a sense of self. But it, it can also serve as a prod. Uh, so Faust says, you call yourself a part, yet stand before me whole. Mephistopheles says, I only speak the sober truth. You mortals, microcosmic fools, may like to think of yourselves as complete, but I'm a part of the part that was first, uh, that first was all, part of the darkness that gave birth to light, proud light that now contests the senior rank of Mother Night, disputes her rights to space, yet it does not succeed, however much it strives, because it can't escape material fetters. Light emanates from matter, lends it beauty, but matter checks the course of light, and so I hope it won't be long before they both have been annihilated. Um, he wants to drag everything back into the nothing. Yeah. This kind of and and the way he's he's thinking about it. Uh, a long, long time ago on the blog, I posted uh, a few links to this extraordinary uh, or this extraordinarily rancid and body poet from the 18th century uh or 17th century i guess long 18th century uh john wilmot the earl of rochester mm -hmm. and rochester was i mean he was a nihilist <laughs> um, <laughs> through and through uh and a, a pretty rank person uh but he becomes the model for um the reformed <laughs> rake because apparently he did have uh uh a two-year period of, um, I guess, recompense for his wild behavior while he was in bed, slowly dying of tertiary sickness. <laughs> right. uh, but, as, as one does. Um, as one does. But anyway, uh, and if you want to see the variation in permutation, that's where Jane Eyre, um, or the, the sort of romantic hero villain of Jane Eyre comes from uh, Mr. Rochester yeah. that's based on Lord Rochester, or at least the name is taken from Lord Rochester, any kind of evil, scheming, cynical aristocrat who only wants sex, sex, right. sex, and sometimes booze. But anyway, um, so that Rochester had written this poem called A Satire Upon Reason and Mankind. 
Um, oh, no, no. It, okay, he wrote that, but he also wrote this great poem called Upon Nothing, which is an encomium on nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, what wonderfulness nothingness is. And he also expresses this desire to collapse back into the nothing. It's that bestial part of humanity that wants to lose its consciousness so that it ultimately doesn't have the burden of consciousness and can be nothing. Um, the only thing it can do is tear at anything that it sees that has substance. In Shakespeare, this is horrifying. It's Iago. Yeah. Um, the, the great cynical jester who's a pyromaniac. Uh, in Faustus, Mephistopheles, I don't know. He's nowhere near as evil as Iago. <laughs> and he's, I mean, if anyone's doing bad stuff, it's Faust, but God says that's okay because, you know, society. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, honestly, Mephistopheles is, is rather like, I, you can't help but have an affection for the character. I mean, I, I think there's a reason why he is one of the best known just through cultural osmosis devil figures. Uh, in the culture because well, he, he really he's, he's the he's, he's your sidekick making snide comments that, that amuse you throughout the whole you know throughout your uh period of self-destruction <laughs> well okay he's this is weird but it, it reminds me of all right so the prank that or the trick that milton pulled is making <clears throat> satan the most human character right. He's the most identifiable. He's the most human because he represents that fallenness of humanity. Okay. Faust is kind of a symbolic act. I, I don't find, okay. I don't find Faust to be a fascinating character yeah, yeah. at all. I, 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 his nighttime speeches are okay. I mean, I can see how it's serving a kind of symbolic function, but I don't think there's enough to really hang together. Yeah. And I don't really find his quest or drive to be that fascinating, well, or at least as he expresses yeah, it. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a uh, cipher, basically. I, I think Faust yeah, exists for yeah. us to project upon more than anything else. And, and that's yeah. part of what makes, of course, Mephistopheles so essential is because he's, he's the person who's allowed to be a character uh, in all of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, the other part of this, I guess we'll have to get to this in, in the second um, episode we do on Faust mm-hmm. part one. But the other part of this is I don't, I don't think Gretchen is that compelling as no, a character. No. I mean, she's really, she, she serves her symbolic function right. and, you know, God bless her. She's as horny as Faust is, but that's about right. it. She serves the symbolic function and that's all. Um, Mephistopheles is the character who's closest to being. Yeah. Human. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Am I falling into a Mephistophelian trap by identifying with them? Yeah, perhaps. But it's still hard not to because he's the most vibrant character here. Yeah. I mean, okay, I, I would put this out to the listeners, you know, put it up on Twitter. Who do you think should play Mephistopheles? <laughs> I mean, I was running through my brain. There's a side of me that kind of wants to do um, 
if you could have like Ghostbusters era Bill Murray yeah. again, like that level of just, just nihilistic cynicism, nine, yeah, yeah. Uh, that might be kind of I think, fun. Um, but there's also something like I think Michael Shannon could do interesting stuff with it. Yeah, I mean, I wonder what Michael Shannon would do <laughs> if he could pretend for five seconds he was Johnny Depp. <laughs> Like I, I, that, that's kind of like, I mean, there's this kind of theatricality. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff, yeah absolutely. That, you know, it's, it's really, really vibrant. Um, there's something about, there's something about Michael Shannon, which is threatening even when he's telling you. Happy that's, a, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, and I, I would, I would like to, uh, I, I would, <laughs> I would like to say like, listeners, if this is your first episode, we don't typically do fantasy casting for, <laughs> for characters in this stuff. No, reading, no, but, but I mean, it really, the theatricality of Mephistopheles as a character, it almost demands it. <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> Faust is is having this back and forth with Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is setting him up. Uh, Mephistopheles says, can I go now? Uh, This has been nice, and I'll come back and play, but I really have things I got to do. And Faust says, well, uh, you know, the chimney's right there. Uh, Go out the window. Uh, Mephistopheles says, I can't go out the door because you've got a pentagram there. And he says, well, there's a chimney, there's a window, you know, help yourself. And Mephistopheles says, well, you know what? Uh, devils have to go out the same way they came in. I'm sorry, man. It's the rules. So he's trying to articulate or trying to lull Faust into believing that there are rules to damnation. And Faust is like, oh, okay, I get this. So you're making me, you're setting me up so that if we work out a contract later, then it's all cool. But no, dude, I really want to see what you can do. And so Mephistopheles says, you want to see what I can do, huh? And so he conjures spirits (laughs) to basically sing Faust to sleep. but it's really kind of – I mean it, it seems like this is one of, uh, another one of those hologram images to project on the mm-hmm. wall. But um, uh, OK. Uh, what are they conjuring? Uh, this, the voice of the spirits comes in and says, Vanish dark arches, high but confining. Let us your blueness brighter, more friendly show from on high. Would that the dark clouds quickly departed. So they um, – they make it seem as if Faust's study has like the roof has come off and now he's staring at this beautiful sky. Little stars twinkle, planets among them gleam in the sky, beauty ethereal, youths truly heavenly, gracefully bending, floats uh, lightly past. Fond ye- uh, yearnings follow them on their paths, fluttering bits of garments abandoned, brighten the landscape, brighten the bower where lost in illusion, lover unites with lover forever. Um... He seems to, they seem to be describing uh, shooting stars, but mixing it with this weird kind of eroticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that becomes this kind of like running theme through what they're doing. So they're lulling him into this weird erotic well, trance. And it's, and it's an, it's an, he falls asleep. And it's an erotic trance with the object being the natural world. And that's going to yeah. come around a lot too. <laughs> 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 oh, listener, oh, prepare well, uh, for the second section. <laughs> You'll never be more horny uh, for landscape than uh, when you're reading Faust. Oh, Lord. Uh, 
anyway, um, so Mephistopheles basically lulls him to sleep. Uh, and, and this is another weird aside. Uh, you know, this is the eroticism of landscape, mm-hmm. but, um, it's also playing in that weird trope of nature being, I guess, for lack of a better word, fuckable. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, this is something that Mary Shelley really picks up on. This is a, this kind of romantic trope of this eroticization of nature. Um, in Frankenstein, it, it's a running theme that Frankenstein basically wants to viol- sexually violate yeah. nature. Uh, that is how he tends to talk about his scientific right. quest. So, you know, if we're talking about these points of contact and Mary Shelley, uh, I don't know if she had any German, but her husband, Percy Shelley, had tons yeah. of German and definitely read to her translations that he was doing the fastest. Um, I think she may have taken some of this material and turned it to her own um feminist purposes yeah. or, or sort of proto-feminist purposes and um really kind of tweaked it in some fascinating ways. But anyway, so Mephistopheles takes the opportunity to duck out. He has some rats come in and gnaw through the pentagram so he can make it back to the door again. And then we have Faust study. Okay, so this is something that was confusing to me the first time I read it. Um, we have a scene that ends in Faust study and then a scene that begins in Faust study. And there are no markers, but apparently a few days have passed. Right, yeah. It was, and that was, it took so, me a moment, because, uh, you know, this was my first time reading it. It sort of took me a moment. And this happens several times in the text where you're left to infer from you know, well into whatever section you're reading that, oh, some time has passed or like what have you. And yeah, this is one of those that was, it was like, oh, so I get he, is this just when he wakes up? Like, what is going on? <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it's so. Uh, he has this lament, you know. Faust ends, uh, you know. He has this lament. Ah, I've been duped once more. Um, but then, a few days later, apparently, uh, Meph- uh, Mephistopheles knocks on the door and has to be invited in three times, much like Beetlejuice, and um, Faust lets him in and he starts bemoaning his life again. Uh, what am I living for? I'm too old to live for pleasure only too young to be without desire. What can I hope for from this world? You must abstain, refrain, renounce. That is the everlasting song in every ear. One that our whole life long, we each, we hear each hour hoarsely singing. When morning comes, I always wake in terror and feel like shedding bitter tears because the day I see will not fulfill a single wish of mine before it's over. Will dampen any faintest hope of pleasure by its capricious strictures. And with a thousand petty matters will stifle the creative urge that stirs my heart. Uh, the God that dwells within my breast can deeply stir my inmost being. The one that governs all my faculties cannot realize its purposes. And so for me, existence is a burden, death to be welcomed and this life detested. Um, he's, he's got this frustration. It's, it's sort of like middle age angst. Um, he, he, understands that there's more but he only understands that there's more because he can't have it yeah yeah right? uh so he has this rumination 
It's a real articulation of nihilism. He says, curse be to start the high opinion that the mind has of itself. Um, curse be what as appearance intrudes on and deludes our senses and curse be the falseness of our dreams, their empty promise of a lasting name. Cursed be what flatters us as things we own as wife and child, as fields, our workmen plow Cursed be mammon too, both when he with his treasures incites us to bold enterprise and when to provide us idle pleasure, he cushions us a bed of ease, a curse upon a curse, uh, a curse upon the nectar of the vine, a curse upon love's highest favors, a curse on hope, a curse on faith, but cursed be patience most of all okay um it's the the possibility of turning away from everything and lapsing into nothingness which makes him ripe for mephisto's wiles now the question would be why did the suicidal drive not do that either (laughs) i yeah I mean, I guess because in a way that's active, I, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, and that might – I'm guessing that's one of those things that Goethe just – well, back when I was in my 20s, I felt like this. Now that I've been tinkering with this poem play for you know, 30, 40 years, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it, it seems to me something that that's not exactly workoutable. Though I, I suppose one could say that the suicidal drive, the the desire, the way he articulates it is a desire to see the next frontier, yeah. uh, because this is all over, is still something that puts him in the camp of the good because it's a striving. Right, right. He's, he's still moving. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah it's striving. And therefore, it's beating back the, um, oh, what is the term? Ataraxia? Am I am I pulling that out of nowhere? That that might be a. Um, uh, there's some sort of Greek, there's some sort of Greek term for spiritual sloth that is theologically used, and I cannot think of it now. <laughs> I think I think I might, I think that I might mean, have just been a disease from the Elder Scrolls video game series that I just said there, but. <laughs> But that's, I mean, the 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 theological sloth yeah. that that's pretty yeah. much it. Okay, so that's that's when Mephist- uh, Mephistopheles says, "Okay, then here we go. Let's do it. Um, I'll bind myself to serve you here, be at your beck and call without respite, and if or when we meet again beyond, then you will do the yeah. same for me." Um, Faust says, "With the beyond, I cannot be much bothered. Once you annihilate this world, the other can have its turn at existing. The earth is the source of all my joys, and the sun shines upon my sorrows. If ever I can be divorced from them, it cannot matter what then happens. I do not want to hear still more discussion of whether there will be future loves and hates, and whether also in those spheres there's an above or a below. Um, the transcendent of the world is what drives them." And it's kind of material transcendence, I guess. That's what drives him. Um, the 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 joy he takes in being, I suppose, is kind of fundamental to him. So he says it doesn't really matter what happens in the afterlife. Okay, so the, this is one of those moments that's quintessential to the text. Um, unpacking what Faust's wager is because faust doesn't sell his soul uh, yeah he proposes right else, right yeah it's it's right? yeah that, that was what's that jumped out at me too that the you know the uh 
the, the story that you absorb, like me, you know, a, a layman through osmosis is that like, oh, Faust is a guy who sold his soul for knowledge and then hubris, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, he's basically making the, um, <laughs> he's basically making like, uh, you know, the, uh, on, uh, on Seinfeld when Jerry and George come up with a pilot for a sitcom and their pitch is that a guy gets sentenced to be someone's butler. <laughs> Uh, that's yeah. right. He's Faust is basically <laughs> submitting himself to that sentence. <laughs> okay. So the, this is where I wish I knew the German so I could unpack it, but I'm going to walk through what he actually says, go to Arndt's notes, and then see if I can, can figure this out. All right. <clears throat> You'd think I would have done this ahead of time. <laughs> anyway. Faust says, if on a bed of sloth I ever lie contented, may I be done for then and there. If ever you, with lies and flattery, can lull me into self-complacency or dupe me with a life of pleasure, may that day be the last for me. This is my wager. Here's my hand and mine. If I should ever say to any moment, Terry, remain, you are so fair, then you may lay your fetters on me, then I will gladly be destroyed." Then they can toll the passing bell, your obligations then be ended, the clock may stop, the hand may fall, and time at last for me be over. Consider well your words, will not forget them, nor should you. What I've said is not presumptuous blasphemy. If I stagnate, I am a slave. Why should I care if yours or someone else's? Okay, so here's how Arndt tries to unpack Mm -hmm. that. He says, the concept of the moment, Augenblick, literally, blink or glance of the eye, <clears throat> is crucial for Faust as a whole, nor does Goethe subsequently allow the reader to forget the terms of the wager that Faust here proposes and that Mephistopheles uh, accepts. He gives us some information about part two. Then he comes back and says, what Faust has in mind is the condition for his wager is not only a sense of satisfaction, which would complete and negate his striving, uh, but also an absolute fulfillment of all desire where the temporal and experiential process involved in such striving would be gathered together within such a single moment so that time itself would be transcended. Yeah. Okay. What Faust seems to be getting at is that he wants that transcendent moment. Right. He wants time to stop. Uh, he wants to step beyond space and time and into the eternal. He's, he's, he's after he's after Nirvana. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the thing is, Mephistopheles just set himself up. If that's what Faust wants, then Faust will be so beyond the terms of the bargain <laughs> that the bargain will not exist anymore. Yeah. So it's it's this way in which Mephistopheles thinks he's doing one thing, but he sets himself up for a game that he can't lose because Mephistopheles doesn't understand the terms that Faust is putting out there because Faust as mere human mortal cannot articulate those yeah. terms. So that's – I mean that to me is the kind of joke right, of this right. is that – what Faust wants is to step beyond space and time. And once he has stepped beyond space and time, then he will be satisfied with experience, the experience that is not experience of all experience and so on and so forth. And we can get lost in ourselves <laughs> yeah, yeah. in these kind of mystical translations. And Mephistopheles just thinks, oh, well, when he's had enough. Right, right. He'll, he'll, he'll get bored mind. or tired and then it's all over. Yeah. 
Exactly. Um, Mephistopheles cynically thinks that what he means is, I guess, material exhaustion. And what Faust means is something else. He he, he means the, 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 the negation of anticipation and nostalgia all at once. Yeah. Exactly. So, um... Mephistopheles says, okay, let's do it. <laughs> Put her there. <laughs> and where does he take him? A bar. I mean, where, where else where do you start? I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, it's, <laughs> um, I guess we'll end at Auerbach's Tavern because I have nothing to say about Auerbach's yeah. Tavern. The very first place they go is into it's sort of like, all right, this is what's so fascinating and fun and weird about this work is like, okay, everything we've been talking about uh, up till now has had to do with these sort of mystical formulations, mm-hmm. these formulations of romantic transcendentalism, or I guess proto romantic transcendentalism, this striving which seeks to connect the material and the transcendent, which uh, Goethe following Schiller seems to see in, um, in certain kinds of sexual activity. Um, there's all the symbolic stuff and there's all this, you know, really, really heady material that we've just wasted about two hours <laughs> going through. And, uh, as soon as <clears throat> they're into it, basically Mephistopheles takes them to a frat yeah, party. It's, I, I honestly like it, it, it jumps immediately into, uh, What's that line from uh, Iggy Pop's Lust for Life? Beat my brain with liquor and drugs. Like, yeah. Yeah. Go straight there. (laughs) So, all right. So, Auerbach's Tavern is an actual place, uh, as we were talking about in the the prelude episode. And all this scene is here to do is just be slapstick. They pull a bunch of pranks on a bunch of students. Um, Faust is kind of bored while Mephistopheles is pulling, he's, he's making wine from nothing and making fire from wine. And a student rides uh, a wine cask and uh, everyone gets uproariously drunk and Faust is bored. <laughs> what, a, what a great way to round so out part the- one of our exciting series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so then they go to the witch's kitchen, which is um, – I, I, I want to extend the discussion just to the witch's okay, kitchen sure. because it introduces the next yeah, part. Yeah. Um, the, the witch's kitchen, again, is this weird, strange hodgepodge. This was something that Goethe began or he, he had sketched out initially – as part of the original, you know, extraordinarily Germanic design mm-hmm. and then changed it later on when, or didn't exactly change it, but just grew bored with it. Uh, when he went to Italy and was like, ah, classicism. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the other thing was the Walpurgisnacht. The Walpurgisnacht was supposed to be a giant orgy, which ended with a bunch of witches kissing a goat's ass. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, he decided to classicize it and turn it into something yeah. else. I feel like we're really missing out. But, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, the witch's kitchen, it was something that he felt he had to have in there as a bridge to the main or what he was thinking of as the main plot. 
the Gretchen right. plot. And The Witch's Kitchen is another weird sort of hodgepodge where you have talking animals, you have this kind of prince of misrule uh, with Mephistopheles, you have the topsy-turviness, you have the bloody witch. And again, Faust is bored with yeah. this. But in the mirror, he sees the – okay. The reason they go to the witch's kitchen is basically to get him some – Right, right. Exactly. He, he needs, um, he needs, he's going to need his youthful vigor for this uh, for this bender of all benders coming up. Yeah. I, I, and I, I'm not I'm not just being crude about this. That's what they say in the yeah. text. This guy, he's he's an old man. He needs to be able to get it up again. Do you have a potion? And the witch says, yeah, let me do some stuff. And she performs another kind of mock Eucharist. Yeah. But what happens here is that Faust sees a magic mirror and sees the image of ideal beauty in the mirror. So the idea is that he doesn't even actually need the potion. He can get aroused again from this kind of like idealized eroticism, which transcends uh, just the the horny lust. Right, right. This is a, a kind and, of what uh, platonic, this is a platonic lust, we might call it. Yeah, you know what? That that sounds yeah. good to me. Uh, platonic <laughs> lust. That's that's what Faust finds. Um, guys, in the next section we do in this, we're going to come to Faust's wank cave. So just bear <laughs> with us. Yes. But anyway, this is the first intimation that what we're about to get into is the Gretchen plot, and, and I guess that's where we'll leave off tonight. Um, this has been so weird. It's, it's weird already. Uh, and, I, um, I, we're not even really getting to the, the, we haven't even gotten to the plot yet, really. Um, which is, which is just all that indication of just what a strange work Faust is. And something I'm going to be thinking about a lot in between our recording now. And when we record sort of the next section or the next, you know, when we round out part one by talking about the Gretchen plot, I, I'm going to be thinking long yeah. and hard and maybe doing some reading even. No guarantees. I'm very lazy on what makes this a canonical work, right? Like what? And and, and we've talked about this before. It, it's actually been a few episodes since we talked about the nature of canon and things like that. And we might, yeah, we might even. I guess you know, no guarantees. We might even do a special episode about that, like circling back around and talking about what we've learned about canon and canonicity. But the the notion that we, especially when we're talking about Don Quixote, right, that canon yeah. isn't that these works are representative of the milieu of their time. It's that they break out of the milieu of their time. And that is yeah. definitely going to be, I guess, I, I want to do a lot of pondering about Faust in that respect. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe we might think about Faust and the tropes of pornography. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we'll leave it with yeah. that. Yeah, oh yeah. All right. <laughs> what again, a, 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 a fine way to round it out. And um, and God, Claude, as ever, I am deeply in your debt for actually knowing what you're talking about. Because it really, well, I, just <laughs> even providing just like a, because I guess listeners at home, you have to understand that I usually come into a recording session with a lot of inchoate ideas scrambling around in my brain, because that's just generally how I exist. That's how my brain works. Most of the time I do take notes and I, you know, I work from notes when we're talking here and everything, but you know, Claude is of course the, the backbone of uh, the whole operation. And this is just Claude, a shout out 
to how much you're helping me understand my own thoughts about Faust <laughs> by, by being that backbone. And so then I can finally like sort of gather what has been swirling around in my brain, which I imagine is only going to get worse once we get to the actual esoteric alchemical part um, later on. Oh, but. God. <laughs> um, this is, this is, this is yeah, my way of saying... Everyone, listeners out there in Radio Land, Claude is uh, is is just—he's an absolute mensch. <laughs> well, I I do my best, but it, anyway, you know, this is a work where the the orgy in the Hearts Mountains is not even the most pervy thing that happens. So, if you want to hear about the pervy things that happen, I guess yeah, tune in tuned. next time. <laughs> uh, so we'll pick back up with the rest of Faust Part One in the next episode. Uh, we'll we'll pretty much cover the the Gretchen plot and <laughs> Faust, you misogynist yeah. fuck. Uh, but anyway, we'll pick up with the uh, the the Gretchen plot and and the complications of that, and then we'll try to unpack the ending. And then, uh, in, in case you haven't been following along, the plan for for Faust Part Two is to take it act by yeah. act. Because if it took us this much to get through this much of part one, <laughs> uh, part two is geez. right. Right, we will. Uh, so this is, this is dense stuff we're about to get into. Yeah, next year might be the Faust part two year. All right. So anyway, <laughs> stay tuned and uh, see you next time. <laughs>